You know, Nick, I want to run a marathon. Welcome to another edition of Sounding Board. Okay, Nick, you're not going to do your Robert Peston again, are you? Oh, good God, no. Brilliant. Okay. So today, I wanted to talk about preferences and the different types of preferences, what they mean, uh, what they mean you know, politically, that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, that's okay. So, so the first kind are stated preferences. Now, this is, this is what we say we're going to do yeah. or we say that we like. Um, so, you know, but any, any economist worth his salt doesn't doesn't take these into account at all but sadly most economists, most economists do, do and most politicians do so to give you an example i want to run a marathon for example um you know do, do yes. you actually want to run a marathon um i want to learn the guitar i think we should increase taxes i'm going to lose weight all that kind of thing these are stated yes. preferences or i wish you know i wish i was eating less sugar for example yeah. i wish i was eating less sugar well are you eating less sugar yeah, yeah. So these are stated preferences. Yeah. The important ones are revealed preferences. And so and this is the terminology that, again, experts use, I take it, this term revealed versus... Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So, you know, are you actually, you know, are you actually learning the guitar? Are you, are you running to, towards a marathon or are you just doing a five kilometre park run every yes. two or three weeks? Um, yes, you know. yes. Have you changed your diet? Yeah. Exactly. Are you voluntarily giving any money to the government? And obviously, to, to, you know, <laughs> our listener can, can probably remember a, a podcast we did about that. Um, yes. And no one... people don't. Well, other, other than the occasional anomaly, yes. it's, it's nothing. You know, the years go Statistically, by. Statistically, it's nothing. Yeah. You know, years go by without anybody donating to the government. Yeah. So this is why revealed preferences are important. Um, because you know that they actually they, they they tell you stuff about people and not just yes. not just not just what people people say. Um, but the big one I wanted to talk about this week are is a, is a type of stated preference, right? Um, falsified preferences. Ah, okay, right. Okay, yeah. So they, so there yeah. there are state you might you might in good faith say I want to run a marathon or yeah. I want to eat less sugar. Falsified preferences are where you know that you don't really believe it, but you're saying it anyway. You know, it's, it's where it's where people state it, preferences that they they know they don't believe. Uh, you know, public misrepresentation of their views. Um, is it really they, that they truly know that they don't believe? Well, no. So there's there's a there's a you know there's a, a you see a bit of a gray area. This this is how conscious actually are they that they don't agree with, or is this like peer pressure? Essentially, a lot to, of it. A lot of it is to fit pressure. into the crowd. Yeah, because so people tend to do it because they believe everybody else does, or it's to fit in a certain social group, so you, right. you can get increased status or increased reputation, um, avoiding being shunned, for example. Yes, um, I think that would probably be a key one. Yeah, so it's it's, it's basically it's all social self-interest. That's what people, and it could be it could be right. very conscious. You know, after a while, if you're in an echo chamber for a while, it could become almost subconscious. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. your mind has been changed because you've been indoctrinated. Um, but that's um, okay. Okay. So, have you got any examples of, of well, falsified preferences? Then so we've just given loads of just standard stated preferences. So I've I haven't managed to get any of this for the UK. Okay. I've found some statistics for America. Okay. Um, and this is about polarization between parties. Right. 
Okay, so and and this has been happening. And you're talking in the UK here, as well. Uh, right? Are you, are you talking very specifically here about Democrats and Republicans? Then? I am at the moment. Yeah, this right, is the only, right. so this is what I managed to okay. managed to find. Um, so, tracking ten political values, the Pew Research Center since 1994, they've discovered a 36 percentage point gap between Republicans and Democrats. This is the most recent last right. year. Um, or it might, might be 2017. So it's a couple of years ago. Yeah, 36 percentage points difference between the two, and the gap was 15 points in 1994. Right. So that, that tells us that the political parties are getting, you know, uh, getting polarised, getting further. I don't know. Understood. Understood. Um, but according to a Gallup poll in May of last year, 2018, 43% of Americans consider themselves independents, while only 26 and 29% consider themselves. Republicans and Democrats. Right. So the positions themselves of the two parties have got and are getting further apart. But when you but speak to individuals... More, well, okay, no. So we only have one set of figures for that. So we don't know what the trend is for that. But there is a sizable chunk of people that consider themselves to be none of the Yeah, yeah centrists in the, in the middle or, or whatever. Yeah, independent free as, as Well, I mean, the term independence is what... Um, is what uh, the US use, isn't it? Uh, where over here we, uh, we we have the centrists, is, mm. is how people are described. But um, but yeah, over there it's independent, which means you might vote one way, you might vote the other. And just as an aside, so they were polled uh, around the twenty sixteen election as well, and right thirty eight percent of respondents observed the election somewhat closely. Uh, twenty two followed not too closely, and eight percent not at all. So there's still quite a large percentage of people who don't who aren't. Don't seem to be that bothered yes. as well. Um, right, right, okay. And another, another couple of statistics, and, and this is by the, the Pew Research Centre as well. Forty-four percent of Democrats and forty-five percent of Republicans hold an unfavourable view of the opposition. That's almost identical straight away, isn't it? It is, but in in nineteen ninety four, it was fewer than twenty percent for both of them. Oh, that's it was like late teens. So that's a huge, a huge big increase, increase in a very short space of time. Um, and also 55% of Democrats said that the Republican Party made them afraid. And 49% of Republicans say the same thing about the Democrat Party. Right. So it's all, it's all very interesting. You know, you kind of talk to people individually um, and they say one thing. But then when you when you kind of talk about, about it in parties and politically, they tend to kind of go from you side from with your, one to the other. Your party. Well, it's this. So this is a measure of tribalism in a way. It is. And they actually say so there was a study by, and I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce these names correctly. Right. Um, Serge Moscovici and Marisa Zavaloni, um, psychologists, okay. uh, and they conducted a study and they, they had got a bunch of participants in it um, and they were asking their opinion of uh, the French president, Charles de Gaulle, or who, who was the then president. Right, yes. And then they were asked about their attitudes towards Americans. Um, and then this was individually. And then after that, they got them to talk about it in a group. Okay. And what happened was that after spending time in the group, their views became more polarised. Right. And you know, they'd, they'd get a, a few a few dominant people in the group would would turn people's yes. opinions. Okay. So so we, you know when, when when people come in in these groups, um, you know, and, and they become echo chambers. And so, are you saying then that those people who were more moderate, for one of the term, uh, they are the ones that are falsifying their preference by going over to, to one side. Yeah, because, of, because they, they might believe that the, that's the way the whole group thinks. And is it, is it measurable that they are already a little bit towards that side? This isn't swinging people 
from no people one tend, side people to the tend other. to go from so people will be on one side or another but maybe not very much yes and then they will levitate towards their chosen side yes so yeah you know, slightly right wing republicans will get pushed further and, to the right and that's the point i wanted to make i wanted this isn't switching people that are yeah a, a little bit democrat and they're going all the way over to republican it's, it's not it, it's it's taking people that are in in this country we call center left and center right over to the left and the right you say that however right um so think about the 1992 election in great britain um, and the same, the same ah, thing happened. Okay, so you're talking shy Tories. Shy Tories. Right. And the same thing happened in America in 2016. Apparently there were 61 national polls. Only two gave Trump the lead. Yes. Because people that. were falsifying their preferences. So this is people saying, yes, I'll vote for Hillary. And actually getting to the ballot box and voting for Trump. Well, and again, you could use, I mean, yes, you've used the 92 election here. Uh, but the 2015 election and all the polls running up to it over here with Ed Miliband and Labour... Uh, and and people like me say Cameron's got a majority, and no one again, no one was no one was, was saying that in the polls. No one was um, showing, but they clearly clearly were shy Tories, or at the very least, people who just got there at the end and went, I just can't do it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm sure there's an element of people getting into the booth and thinking, you know what, I just I can't vote for Hillary Clinton. Yes, or I can't vote for Ed Miliband. Uh, yes, and just at the last second, putting a cross in the other box. But I well, think I think so, so. So that is very much consciously falsifying your preferences. Yes, um, I agree. And, 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 and that's, they don't want to. They don't. They don't feel like them answering that question. What is it? Is it that they actually subconsciously or consciously want to skew the polls? Or I don't know. Do they feel like they're being honest at that particular moment in time? Is it because it's a person on the clipboard or a person on the other end of the phone? And they're saying, hi, it's so-and-so from Gallup, have you got some time to ask some questions? And they don't even want the person the other end to know you're speaking to a Trump supporter. I, th- I absolutely think that's what it is. Whereas, you go to the ballot box and... It's completely there's, secret, there's, nobody can see you. One of private. the massive benefits to, to that form of democracy is that it is a person. It, it is a secret ballot. You don't have to tell anyone. Because it is revealed at the end, they just count them. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very interesting. Have you heard of the Abilene principle? I think I have. So this is this, remind me this. Yeah, this so, is the restaurant. Trip yeah, or so it's 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 um you got got a group. Forgotten about this. You got a group of people trying to trying to decide where they want to go to dinner. One person suggests driving to a restaurant in a distant city called Abilene. Another person, not wanting to travel far, yes. doesn't want an argument. Just says sure. The third person, thinking that there's already a majority, says, yeah, let's go there. Even though they even never though, wanted even to. Even though two of them don't want to yes. go. Um, That's so how to so, take... Right, so, let's so just lay that out again. doesn't exist. Yes, let's lay that out again. Their, re- their revealed preferences... Or well, right, they don't, have, they don't, they don't ask, have any revealed No, exactly. So if you were to have done a secret ballot of them, then most people would have been in favour of eating locally. Correct. Yeah? And this is a this is a simple three person system, so two people makes a majority. Whereas because of the not not just the effect of a dominant person, but probably the order of which people reve- people stated their preference as well had an effect on it. So as long as the mouthy person says first, well I want to go to Abilene, which is what they tend to do, <laughs> which is what tends to happen, then. 
the other two people who didn't want to, if one of them wants an easy life and the other one doesn't want to rock the boat, <laughs> suddenly it looks like everyone wants to go to Abilene. And this, and obviously this works for more than three people as well. Absolutely. You know, it can go, it can go on and on. You know, the fourth person, the fifth person. Oh yeah, sure, let's go to Abilene. When, when maybe only one person does. Yeah. Apparently, there's a tipping point. Okay. So there's a tipping point, and when ten percent of these mouthy, gobby, uh, you know, yeah, people yeah, who are yeah. intoler intolerant, and you know, um, that's when yeah. opinions very quickly start to change. Ten percent is a very, very low number, isn't it? It is. It is. That that's what I find scary about that. Because you can apply that to all sorts of things. Well, a jury of twelve people. If you have one or two clever people, they can just sway the entire jury. God, that's a thought that's going to fester. Yeah. I don't know. I've never thought of it like that. Michael Michael Malice, <laughs> when he was um, uh, the the other the podcaster and the guy who wrote uh, the the guy who he wrote the biography of Kim Jong Il. Uh, right. He's uh, he's an anarchist, and he went over to he's he's a Russian, mm. um, uh, born in the mid seventies. Uh, his parents moved over to America in the late seventies when he was like he was two years old. Okay, and he was interested in uh, kind of finding out more about what his parents would have gone through, and the only really place on earth that was anywhere like that was North Korea. So right. He, so he visited North yeah, Korea as a current. Yeah. Yeah, and and it kind of completely changed his outlook on on, on, on life and everything. Um, real life changing experience. He and he wrote this book um, about. Kim Jong Il, because he was basically saying that the, the entire media have got this wrong. Um, right. They're, they're just they're, they're not treating North Korea, you know, seriously enough. They don't know how bad it is over there. Okay. So I wrote the book to, to tell everybody. But he was on. He was saying he was on jury duty, and he he said straight up, "Look, I'm an anarchist. I'm not going to convict anyone for anything, you know, for, for drug offences or whatever." And they said, "No, tough. You're still going on." Yeah. Crazily enough. Um. So and he said he was the he was you know the cleverest there, and he managed to get people to. I think, you know, there were the kind of drug offences there and he, he just said, look, you know, we can't, this is a victimless crime, we can't convict, even though there was evidence. Um, so, you know, one strong person, he's <laughs> very, very clever, very good speaker. Yes, yes. Um, you know, managed to, to turn the jury. Um, so it happens. Yeah. Which is why democracy isn't, isn't a particularly good thing as well, because, of, because exactly because of this, you can have 10% of the people can just be intolerant and can have their, their views and they can just manage to sway enough people. Mm. Um, and so on, on any topic and so I suppose again so yeah talking about this purely on a political level then if you can identify those people within the electorate and get them essentially to do your job for you then you just have to appeal to them you, you don't you appeal to the extremes actually in that scenario that's, I find that quite interesting. And but that's why. So that's why you know. I mean, you, you see, media corporations are, are kind of doing that now. You know, newspapers and TVs, right? TV stations. You know, they're not they're not getting as as, as much hold uh, on the media because of because of podcasts, because of YouTube videos, this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, internet. And and they're going to the, they're going to their base. They're going to the far left and the far right. right. So you've got like CNN and Fox yeah. News, which are so polarized now. Um, that that's what they're doing, and, and, and parties are, do, are doing the same thing as well. You know, you tend to get the Republicans that will go, you know, towards the far right. Um, so uh, this is, I suppose, although, although uh, that's, that's not really happening over here because the consensus has got so nanny state over here that the conservatives, yeah, are, are kind essentially of left a, a left of centre party um, now. That's no, a Labour party, absolutely. So I guess at a certain point, and everyone tries to, to, to because they believe that the entire country is progressive or slightly left-wing or authoritarian they yeah. they're going down the nanny state routes 
um, you know, oh yes, we must spend billions and billions of more on the NHS every single year. We need to tax people for having sugary drinks and yes. e-cigarettes and, and all sorts. So what I was going to say was this, based on the stats you quoted earlier, this is a, a pretty recent phenomenon. Um, I think it's been it's been getting worse, certainly. Yeah, um, I don't imagine. But it's false not something that's been have ever gone away. But no, but it's this this hasn't this polarization of the parties. I, I I suppose without the data, I wonder how cyclical it is, or whether whether it you know essentially vacillates between between these. Is, it does, Although I imagine does it reset itself every now and then. I imagine in the last ten years, because of things like Facebook and Twitter. So it'd be interesting yes. to see. Well, the echo chamber. There are there are these online echo chambers that exist now. Whereas the echo chamber you had in the past, well, you was down the down pub, the or, whatever, pub or with people at School work, or ex- exactly. And and now there are a lot more different groups of people that you wouldn't have ever put together before that have access to each other. But you see, what I find interesting is that there is a a kind of well, it's a political truism that elections are, are won and lost on the centre ground. And I wonder, I wonder whether this means that that is no longer the case, whether it never was, or... But is, 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 it, what I'm getting at? is it appealing to the centrists, or is it trying to kind of frame where the centre ground is? Because I imagine that's quite a lot as well. Well, I suppose... If you, you know, what so you just said about over here... And the way that our Conservative Party in this country, um, and again, I'm saying that because there are other Conservative parties in other countries that aren't necessarily all the same, but over here, they are now, they, are, they, are, they have very much moved over. To, despite what your Owen Joneses and all these other people have said, that taken over by the right-wingers, um, there, are, there are so many policies that are interventionist, statist, and... Um, yeah, state controlling. That that means that they have sought to move the centre ground over I'm, to the left. But I'm I'm not sure if that's if that's them being wiser. So obviously Tony Blair, um, you know when he came when he had that massive landslide in '97. Yeah. Lots of previous Tory voters moved across. Um, so the theory was that he'd grabbed the centre ground. Hmm. Was well, he actually moving the centre ground I... to the right, though, in order to do that? Or to the left? You, you get what I'm saying? He w- was he expanding the centre ground? Well, I, th- I think what he was doing was he was, he was quite canny in his policies. And he mm. was saying, you know, we're going to match the Tory spending plans. And he wasn't, he didn't kind of talk about much left-wing stuff. No, so for, that's in what order, I'm getting in order, in order for a left-wing party to get in, they have to convince a lot more right-wing voters... I would yeah. say, or, or centrists. Whereas I, th- I think naturally the Conservative Party, are, are, if they if they stand their ground, are more likely to get in because obviously Thatcher got in, uh, you know, Major, um, and even even you know David Cameron when he got in first time around, or you know they didn't have the overall majority. But it's difficult. The, isn't it's, it? I, I think there was almost the perfect storm, though. I, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that Blair and the New Labour machine weren't very clever. Um, but there was something about, and let's face it, the the message this time for a change has been used by political parties again and again and again, but it resonates after 13 years, and 
a very tired looking prime minister and you know however many terms and it resonated again after three labor terms and oh some economic problems and etc 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 um so i i i always struggle with the the kind of the more dramatic turning points as to whether or not that's just the electorate going it's time to give the other guys a go now <laughs> rather than and it or and it being the, the you know the tired government is an important one, I think. Uh, John Major's spoken about this, about saying the the gene pool of for ministers at the end of uh, when you get to thirteen years, uh, like you, you've gone through all of the best people, <laughs> and uh, you know he's he's um, he's delivered evidence to um, the select committees and he's talking about how that part of the system needs to change. We need to encourage encourage more people, maybe potentially appoint people from from outside of Parliament and things like that. We've been talking about how stated preferences versus revealed preferences and falsified preferences have related to politics more specifically and whether people will falsify their preference when a pollster asks them a question and how that compares to when they actually go to the ballot box where it is a secret vote and their preference is revealed. But on a more day-to-day -day basis, uh, people's stated and revealed preferences have a larger impact, I would say, uh, and are often used against them by economists or at least economic models that are created uh, or government ministers when they come up with some kind of policy and what you alluded to at the beginning was that economists tend to use stated preferences and certainly politicians do they'll quote a statistic they'll quote a poll uh, eight out of ten people say this uh, but actually unless you look at people's behavior not what they say they're going to do, you're going to end up with what bad policy, I suppose. Well, politicians like to they like to do stuff. Um, yeah. They like to be seen to be doing doing things. Oh, the, the government needs to sort this out. Um, but they can never react as quickly as the market can. So they they almost have to use stated preferences to do anything at all because by the time revealed preferences are revealed, and they can do anything about it, you can bet the market has already reacted. So, and the, uh, the example here is um, uh, if, if everyone stops um, drinking sugary drinks, then the market will just start making something else. Rather than having to tell people to stop drinking sugary drinks, yet we have a sugar tax. So why, so why has the government come up with the sugar tax? Because they believe that it's, uh, I, I, I think we've got, quite a, we've got quite a nanny state government, but I think a lot of that is that they believe that that's what people want. Because, it, you know, in the way that these polls and the way the questions are, are asked, often the answers are, oh, yes, of, co of course the government should, you know, should, should tackle obesity. It'll be, it'll be framed in such a way yeah. um, that it, it seems like a really good thing to do. Well, of course you need to worry about obese people. And, they can, you know, they, and the, the, you know, the, the idea is they can't, Often they, they, you know, they can't stop themselves from, you know, from, from eating a lot of sugar a lot, or not being exercised or whatever. So we the government to needs to step in. Um, I think I think the sugar tax is a really interesting one, 
because I think people's preferences have already been revealed. Oh, absolutely. The trend in people drinking sugar-free drinks has gone up and sugary drinks has gone down. And it's been doing that for years without a tax to change people's behaviour. And so this is an example where I think actually they may have looked at the revealed preferences and seen that there's a trend and they want to somehow get in on the action. They, they want to be seen to be the people who have saved the day when actually... So they want to take credit. They want to take exactly what's what's already going on. Well, right. What's already going on, and uh, yeah, I don't have any other specific examples of, of that, but I think that happens. I think, well, let's let's. Well, let's, smoking. Smoking is another good example. Yeah. Obviously, cigarettes are getting tax and tax and tax, but but people in you know the last fifty years are now aware of how bad smoking is. Yeah. And so you know, smoking has gone down because of that, not necessarily because of the the tax that is on cigarettes. Will have gone down anyway. Exactly. regardless of that and and again i mean well we like you and alcohol alcohol as well you know alcohol consumption has been going down yes um and obviously they've been taxing more so oh, well, it's obviously the tax yeah. yeah these these things are, 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 are multivariate problems and and yes. you know you can't just take one thing and say it's it's obviously that it's like it's like the like the gender pay gap for example yeah yes yes there, yes, there is a, a pay gap overall between men and women but it's not just down to sexism you know men tend to work do the more dangerous jobs and they tend to work longer hours there's or on social hours. On social hours, there's there's, a, there's about forty to fifty different reasons where, where why men overall are paid more, and yeah. obviously sexism sexism is part of that, but it's a very small part. Yeah, well, that what well, it is now. Yeah, exactly. Well, and again, so it comes back, you know, bringing up um, alcohol and tobacco. They are, I mean, they are absolute favourites for tax, aren't they? The government rakes in money from these behaviours, but they. They impose the tax and they increase the tax because what they say is they want to change the behaviour, and it's another it's another thing worth worth pointing out, isn't it? Because well, there's, again, there's, there's the always... preferences are always used to try and change behaviour, where whereby they want to have it both ways. They'll they'll use a tax to try and change people's behaviour for the common good, but then they're quite happy to use a tax because well, that's just money that's owed, and therefore. Um, I'm, I'm going to get that money. It's, it's not going to discourage that behaviour, that different behaviour, in order for me to get all the money in. Well, I think so. I think part of it is that they will say these things. Oh yeah, we, we, you know, we're tackling obesity. Well, actually, they just want a bit more tax. Yes. There's, there's that side of things. Right, there, there's, yeah. we're, we're saying this, and then we're going to we're going to appear to be the, you know, the, the, it's an excuse. Exactly. It's an, it's an excuse just to tax people more, and and tax either changes pay behaviour. Mm. Or doesn't change behaviour depending on, on, on what they want to sell you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're, we're taxing sugar because we want to tackle obesity. We're taxing cigarettes because smoking is bad for you. We're taxing alcohol because drinking is bad for you. And this is categorically why we're doing it. Yeah. We're going to tax rich people, but that's not going to make any difference to their behaviour at all. We're going to tax prosperity and tax income. You know, the more you earn, the more we're going to take from you. We're but going to tax work. But, but that doesn't make a difference. Yeah. And of course it does. Yeah. All tax changes behaviour. Tax aside, I want to bring this back now to this, I think, quite scary notion that if 10% mm. of a group have uh, a strong view that is um, advocated, uh, that it can kind of be that tipping point uh, and it can spread through, spread through the group. Because, you know, you, to me, my mind comes to, you know, the likes of Nazi Germany and things. 
Is that how these things start? I, I think it is, and and so I've I've read a couple of books on this, and there's 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 obviously the, the like you say the ten percent of people who can start to you know uh, influence the rest. influence the will of you know of everybody else. There's also the idea that you can just edge people towards these things slowly, which is what happened in in Nazi Nudge. Germany as well. Yeah, just just keep nudging them a little bit, and then you know eventually they'll move from from one from one side to the other. There's, there's a great book called Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning, um, and it's about this police battalion. And all the officers in this battalion are, are kind of our age, I guess, maybe a little bit yeah. younger, you know, sort of mid-30s onwards. Yeah. Um, so they haven't been indoctrinating the Hitler Youth or anything like that. They're just, they're, they are absolutely ordinary men, um, and they're sent over to Poland. And it's how they, you know, they, they, they start from, you know, kind of regular police officers. And you could, you could, I guess you could obviously, you could argue that, you know, police officers in general are possibly a little bit more aggressive than, you know, than, you know it takes a certain type of person to be, yes. a, to be, to be a police officer. Yes. But they certainly weren't murderers. Killers, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it's, it, it documents their journey from becoming these standard police officers to where they're taking women and children into the forest and shooting them in the back of the head. Right. And, and they're fine with it. They're absolutely fine with it. In fact, the... the um, the battalion ended up splitting into kind of three distinct groups. Um, right. So there were a few absolute psychopaths um, who discovered killing and discovered that they enjoyed it. Yep. And at, at any chance they got, they would they would go and they'd, they'd do all the, all the murdering or the vast majority of it. Yeah. Um, there were those who did it unwillingly. Um, you know, who who, yeah. who 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 weren't the psychopaths yeah. but would still follow their orders. Yep. And then there were those who just couldn't bring themselves to kill anybody, but they did nothing to prevent their teammates and their colleagues. It was all about camaraderie, and they did nothing to prevent them from doing it. Yes. So it wasn't they were saying, "Oh no, you've got to get through us, and we're, you know we're going to we're going to do anything we can to stop you." They just got out of the way. Yeah. So that there weren't any of them who who you know because obviously they were scared. Yeah. Um, and you can't you know I mean think of think of their families and what you know oh, it's, it's it's the, the point is that they were. People like you and I, and they were yeah. just kind of put into this awful, awful situation where they were kind of nudged and nudged and nudged, yeah. and they were in fear and in fear and in fear, and they, it got to the point where they were doing atrocities. Um, yeah. It's a really, really interesting book. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's that's another way you have how you know how the, you know Germany can turn from you know a, a normal European nation into into Nazism. Yeah. So that grouping in that battalion, the ones who they didn't want to go along with it, but they felt like they kind of had to. Um, they obviously didn't feel like they could make their preference known. This was them falsifying their preference. And obviously what you want is you want an environment where everyone can feel they can make their true preference known. You, you, well, they can, they you want their stated state. preference to be their revealed preference, but... You've got to have the culture to do that, a culture of, of free speech and not feel like you're going to be shouted down by the other side. I mean, that battalion is it's all about death and destruction. So it's an extreme example. But right now you have examples. So where... I've, I've, I actually have an example. Right, okay, go for okay, it. So I've got this, there, there was another poll, uh, another Gallup poll. So this was a, a university college um, in America, Pomona College, or however you pronounce it. So 88% of students there agreed that the campus climate prevented them from speaking openly, 
Um, That's fascinating. And they, you know, they, they, they said th- when they were interviewed, they said things that campus dogma uh, could result in you being socially shunned. Um, and there have been other, star- other surveys from the Foundation for Rights in Education and Harvard Crimson have confirmed the same thing. So the vast majority of students believe that they cannot speak freely in their colleges. That's, uh, that's outrageous, isn't it? Uh, free speech in American universities isn't there. <laughs> well, but you're seeing that all over the world. How many times do you hear, well, I believe in free speech, but, but. or however, and it's, all, and it's always, but we can't have hate speech. And then this, and the hate speech is ever broadening. Yeah. Um, you know, you, the, the, the list of things that you cannot criticize or sometimes even talk about um, is, is, is growing by the day. So, so do you think this, this phenomenon of falsified preferences, maybe that's the wrong term to use because I'm sure there's always been falsified preferences, but maybe the, the phenomenon of the, of the quite rapid increase uh, in, in its observation do you think that's intrinsically linked to this rise in, in quotes, the limits of free speech? Or at least what appears to be happening with, with free speech alone, which is that in, in campus culture and in others, there, there seems to be this controlling element to stifle it in some way. I think, so I've, there's, a, there's another book I'm, I'm reading at the moment, um, The Coddling of the American Mind. Oh, uh, by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah, and Greg Lukianoff. Right, um, and and he mentions in that 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 there are, there are times when he, he he wants to go and speak at these universities. Yes, and he's not allowed to. Yeah, he's, he's not allowed to. And it's and, and again, it's a small majority of loudmouths who you know who who cause you know cause cause all, all the upsets. And when 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 actually interviewed, the vast majority of people were open to him, even if they didn't agree with him. They were open, open to, to him. You know, coming and speaking and forming their own opinions, but it's a small majority who, uh, who are intolerant and seem to take over. Am I right in saying I think Jordan Peterson's just been stopped or been banned from Cambridge? From Cambridge. Yeah, I read that this week, and it's it's crazy. Isn't I mean, he's, it? he's probably one of the, he's probably the greatest philosopher of our time. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you think think of the opportunity that is. Think of the opportunity that that would have been for yes. Cambridge students. Yeah. Incredible. This, to, to say that a view is dangerous, I just think is, is crazy. Well, but, the, but the point is, let them make up their own mind. <laughs> are, the, are these people so easily swayable <laughs> that if someone were to come up, let's say someone with, with truly abhorrent views was to come up to them and say, I, uh, I, I believe in, in racism and death and destruction and yada, 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 yada that somehow, suddenly, a majority of the people would go, yes, yes, I, I think you're right, I'm going to follow you. Or you think they might actually critically think about what that person was saying? I, I, that's what I find so odd about it. It's, I mean, obviously, it is, it is, it is protectionism. It is um, in, infantilism. So I think, I think with this example, we, we, know, we know what happens when people do have abhorrent views and they become public. You know, so they get exposed Nick, for what they are. Nick Griffin of the BNP. Yes. We've, um, we've, we've probably said this a couple of times on the podcast, but he appeared on Question Time. Yes, he was given the forum. He, he, was, he was given the forum, he was given the platform. He got demolished by an average panel. And yes, not in fact, a lot of the well. time, he yes. was just making himself look stupid. Yes. And the, the, the BNP, you know, they just evaporated almost yeah. overnight. Um, yeah. So for, for those who, who are listening in America or, or somewhere other than England, the BNP were 
a, uh, a nationalist party of basically racists. Yes, I believe. Um, and they, you know, they were an extreme party. They were an extreme party. They, they, they were growing in popularity um, until their leader appeared on TV when they, they just dropped off a cliff. Uh, yeah. So that's what actually happens. I think what, what, what happens with, with the Jordan Petersons and, and, and Jonathan Hates and these people yeah. is that they know they're speaking reasonably. So a, lo- a, lot, of these, a lot of these people, they, are, they, they know that they're, the, they're, they're in the 10% of these, you know, these intolerant loudmouths. And they know that the rest of the people don't really believe in what they're saying. Yes. And they don't want someone speaking sense on the other side to, to take over. So they, they, they want to protect their little empire. Um, and this is the people who are doing the bans? Yes. You're saying? Yes. Yeah, they right, they right. know they're on shaky ground and, and that their arguments can't actually stand up to scrutiny. A- absolutely. So they, they, they want to push them aside. That's, that's the only reason, I'm sure. No, I think. No, I think you're absolutely right. The thing is, these... Uh, these people who have been are being banned, they already have a global platform online uh, to 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 say what they like, and yes, there's always the danger that someone's going to be banned from Twitter and YouTube and all this kind of stuff, and it and it does happen. But actually, these the types of people we're talking about here, um, generally speaking, haven't been banned or you know, yet. Um, and they do have all of their videos available online and any one of these students that are in that majority of the group that may when asked do you support the ban of Jordan Peterson at uh, at Cambridge they might go yeah yes yeah 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 yeah, I definitely definitely support that ban when actually they're just going along with the crowd because they don't want to be seen to be advocating for his views even if they they don't specifically advocate his views. They just don't support a ban and would be open to hearing him talk. They can just go back to their dorm. They can grab their phone. They can stick their headphones in. And they can watch one of his videos. And in the same way that you know, when you're when you're asked in a poll, how you're going to vote is different from when it's a secret ballot and you get to you you, you get to go and put the X in the box. They. These people can go and watch a video in secret and they don't have to tell anyone about it. And I wonder whether, you know... Well, so what, what, do, you, what do you think the result of these bans are? Do you, do you think it has a positive effect for them? Or, or a negative well, quite effect? possibly. You know, you could get these people who, you know, don't really know my mind. Okay, I don't really know anything about Jordan Peterson. He's getting banned. Let me have I, a look. I, I'd better, I'm interested now. I'd better go and investigate who this guy is. Then when it turns out that either their views are entirely reasonable or they might be um, controversial, but that you'd quite like to make up your own mind, thank you very much. I'd quite like to hear some controversial views because I'm going to hear more than one and I'm going to make up my own mind about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's essentially free publicity. That By now, I mean, maybe they've already obviously thought about this. We're just making observations right now. Maybe that's exactly what they do. They target colleges they know they're never going to be invited to, or at least they, they know that the chances of them being banned are quite high, and then they just have to put out a statement saying it's a great shame and have it picked up by uh, national media in some way, and then not just that campus, but other people as well go, has that guy Jordan Peterson's been in the news again about being banned? Is he really that dangerous? 
shall I go and check him out for myself? And, and do just that. And as long as someone isn't tracking your movements and spying on your internet history, well, obviously there's a snoopers charter stuff that hasn't been passed, but you know could come into effect. As long as people are free to watch what they want on the internet, then they're going to be able to access this stuff. So let's for a moment consider that it's not Jordan Peterson. Yep. It is someone who perhaps does have a bond views and someone you you know that you don't want your students to you know to, to, to Nick Griffin adopt. type character. Yeah. Yeah, you Nick Griffin type characters. Um, do you think it's a good idea banning them from these sorts of events? Or should you let them speak anyway? Should you give Nazis legitimate grievances, for example, and fascists and all these people? How about terrorists? How about them? I, I suppose I will draw the line on someone that's probably going to physically bring death and destruction. As in actually going to commit terrorism. <laughs> I'm, I'm, ta I'm talking about people who are going to say things on a student <laughs> campus. Yeah, no. I, if, if, we, if they were, we're talking if, about freedom of speech. So yes, yeah, absolutely. If, if it was a terrorist who wanted to speak, yeah. then yeah, bring it on and, and I'll debate them. Yeah. Um, you no, know. absolutely. I, 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 I can't think of the reasons why not and this idea that you have to have I mean, trigger warnings I mean what why on earth did that come safe spaces well so, so that that tends to make things worse um, it must do I mean, of course can, it does how can someone not see that um, but yeah it, they exist it's, 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 there's a term for it it's called catastrophizing so yes. when, when you know when somebody might be fine with something but as soon as it has a trigger warning attached to it they become a little bit more nervous and they react differently yeah if you say it's all right to be triggered then you're just you're just feeding um you're feeding neurosis aren't you i mean yeah it's it's, uh, it's the opposite all, all the all these things that they're doing is it, again it's, it's in the book the coddling of the american mind i, I right. can't recommend it enough but okay there's so greg the one half of the, of, the, of the authors he has suffered quite severely from depression in his life right um, and he uh, he adopted uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, ah, CB CBT, CBT, yes, um, and it really really helped him. And then he he was working in universities, and he he realised that all the things that, that that the students were doing, things like you know the catastrophizing and whatever, it was like the exact the mirror opposite um, of, of the CBT, CBT. right. And there, there, are, there are lots and lots of examples. One of the examples that, that Jonathan Haidt's given before is things like peanut allergies. Yes. Um, so, you know, you, you can't allow... In lots of schools now, peanuts are absolutely banned in case someone has an allergy. Yep. Um, in case one of the kids has an allergy. Um, not banned if they know a specific kid has a peanut allergy. They're just banned full stop just in case. Yeah. And since that's... The precautionary principle. Exactly. But since that's been happening... Because kids aren't exposed to peanuts, yes. more and more and more yeah. are getting peanut allergies. So it's actually making it worse. Yeah. Um, and the same, same, yeah, with things like trigger warnings and, and, and what have you. The actual, if you look at the statistics around kind of teenage depression and suicides and this kind of thing, it's getting worse. It's not getting better because of these safe spaces. But they will use that as the reason that we to need double more. down. Yeah, it's 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 like the Venezuela didn't do well because it wasn't socialist enough. So we need more socialism. Oh, we need more EU. It's it's yeah. So they're oh, always, whoa, whoa, they're whoa, always whoa, 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 whoa! I call, I call. You said the E word. Uh, okay, I'll put a pound in our 
EU box. Um, <laughs> we weren't going to talk about that this week. Well, we have. We ha- it was it, one word was mentioned until you brought it up just then. <laughs> Nobody was going to notice that. But anyway, they, they always they always double down. They always, yeah. it, 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 obviously, we need more. It's getting worse. So we yeah. need more. Rather than looking at the behaviour. Um, and, well, okay, look, let's bring this back to preferences. This is what we're talking about here. Uh, the reason we're talking about free speech is because the, the, the stated preferences or the um, falsified preferences, people don't feel like they can say them or they feel like they have to state a certain preference to, to fit in with the group. Yet, it's behaviours that people should be looking at. But what do you think happens to behaviours when people feel unable to talk about their views? If, some, if someone has a view on something and they're not allowed to, to speak about it with anyone else, well, so what, what do you think happens? What I've observed is that people, well, I suppose what I've just said earlier as well, is that people will find a way to do it secretly. It'll kind of, to a certain degree, it drives it underground. Exactly. So, so, so that, that happens. Um, and, and this, you don't want to drive... You know, opinions like fascism and whatever underground. You want to expose them so that no, so that people because if it if it gets driven underground, people will create their own echo chamber, and, yes. then, and then you know they, they, it will get it will grow, it will get worse and worse. Um, whereas you want to expose these these views, and at an extreme case as well, when people can't make their feelings or their preferences or their views known through speech, they become violent. Mm. Um, you know, you have your protests and, 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 and this kind of thing. So what, what you want is you want people to be free to talk about anything. And if they have a stupid view, then they get someone who tells them it's a stupid view and they, you know, they, they change their opinion. Mm. Um, you know, you want to be able to, this is how you, you know, you orient yourself. You know, you, I've, we've all had stupid views in, in, in our time. Um, you know, think of how our political views have changed over the years. Yeah, yeah. And the way we change them is by, by doing thought experiments, by talking to different people, by talking to people you agree with, talking to people you don't agree with. And then your views change over time. If there are certain subjects that can't be talked about and you have one of those views, how, how does it get changed? If you're not even allowed to have that view challenged by somebody else, because that's what we're saying here. Somebody has a view and you're not allowing anybody to even challenge it because you're not allowing that person to speak. How does he ever change his mind? Oh, well, but you see, there is, there is a culture of closed-mindedness though and I think it only grows with limits on free speech with banning people um, and again I suppose that again fits into this polarization idea where you end up um, running home to the extreme side of your argument um, because it's you, it's it's culturally acceptable to to, to be in a herd and to, and to be tribal in that way. You don't want to be on the edge of the tribe. You want to be right at the heart of that tribe. Um, but the point is that does tend to make you close, close-minded. And that's a, that's a, that's a struggle. I, I, uh, there are really basic examples, you know, you know, small communities debating on, you know, what, you know, what to do with the money when they want to build a new play park or whatever. And you'll have the entrenched views of people going, well, I think we should be building a tennis court. Uh, and the other people saying, well, no, I think we should be building you know, something for the kids and, and whatever. And the problem is that most people do have quite entrenched views and it's difficult to change their mind. Absolutely, we can argue that it is only discussion and debate that, that does that. 
Um, and we need to make that as, as easy and as accessible as possible for everybody. So they, so they shouldn't be afraid of yeah. having a stupid view and then changing their mind. What? What? Having different views from different people about different things, and then grouping yourself with these people. So you could have, you know, you could have, you know, people with left wing views and people with right wing views. The issue becomes when the, the whole country has to adopt a certain way of thinking. Yes. Okay. If you if you have if you have these views, then go and ally yourselves with people with those views. And if you have different views, ally yourself with people with those views, and you can live happily. It's when you force the entire group. To adopt your way of thinking, and it switches back from left wing to right wing to whatever. Yes. that's when the issue. That's when I, the issue. I said starts. it to a new member of staff today, and I've said it to people before, and that's the concept that you know, you know, no idea is too stupid to say out loud. And I, I, it was it was a specific example today where someone said, "Well, I didn't, I didn't want to say, I didn't want to say that. I didn't it just in case nobody liked it." <laughs> and my response to to that was never hold back say what you think i'd much rather deal with your honest uh, thought on a subject than have to try and prize it from you or guess what it is and the point there is you know your, your politicians are quite happy to uh, in quotes guess what what you're thinking because actually it'll be based on what they want really rather than what you want uh, but if everyone actually spoke their mind then you know where they stand and you can then go well i know where i need to convince you of something or not or or at least understand the playing field that we're that we're all on i suppose what we're saying is a sounding board is a good idea well i just i just want to come at this from a slightly different angle as well because this is something that i heard i mentioned earlier michael malice um speaking yeah um, and he was being interviewed um by it was either dave rubin or joe rogan uh, possibly both and he was saying that he actually quite likes this polarisation. Okay. Because he believes people are going to get so far apart that they're going to realise that they can't work with each other and then government's oh. going to have to shrink. We're going, oh. to have to start, we're going to have to start leaving people alone because they just can't. it can't just be one way or the other. Who's going to come to that realisation? You don't think the people, the, the mechanisms of the state surely are not going to come to that realisation. How is it? How's that actually going to happen? I, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? It's just it's an interesting it's an interesting point of view. Yeah, because what you hear all the time, and you know, election after election after election, both in the U.S. and the U.K., is just how divided we are. How how divisive things are. Um, I, I, and that's again, that's just people's stated preferences. Yeah, as, as we established, because there's still certainly in America, there's a, there's a huge chunk in the middle. Who see themselves as being this independent or centrist or whatever? Well, but also, when an election of uh, two candidates for president, um, and that's not to say there aren't other candidates sometimes, uh, you know, additional ones, but the, the the U.S. system favors two parties very specifically. So when there's a choice between two people, of course it's going to be divisive. You won't let me choose someone in the middle, so I'm going to have to choose one of these two extremes. Because they probably won't be advocating similar policies, because they're trying to hoover people up, and and then distinguish them from the other side. So to come out and to be surprised, oh, look how divided we are. We we were nearly fifty fifty 
on these on these two. Well, America's been nearly fifty-fifty for well, for about fifty sixty years, hasn't yeah. it? You know, it's always been, and uh, yeah, small margins. Uh, it's always yeah. been it's always been basically half the country's Democrat, half the country's Republican. Uh, so we shouldn't yeah. be surprised. No, not at all. It's my not point. at all. Yeah. So I realise we've been a little bit negative. Um, we don't like to. We don't like to. Certainly, don't like to end on a negative sounding. Board. Some good news, please. So, well, you know, these people that we've been mentioning. You know, you've got your Jordan Petersons, Ben Shapiro's, Joe Rogan, Eric Weinstein. Uh, you, you were talking about Euron oh, Brick, Brick, Brick yeah. Zuby the rapper. I don't know if you listened to I've, him. I've not heard of him. Amazing. You've got to listen to his podcast. Okay. Dave Rubin, Sam Harris. These people, uh, Jocko Willink. They're, you know, they're, these are the people who are proponents of free speech, of long, long conversations, and. You know, so these guys chat all the time. They have podcasts and, and they, you know, they, they do shows together. They don't always agree. In fact, a lot of the time, they don't agree at all. You know, you've got people like Ben Shapiro on the left and you've got Sam Harris. Sorry, Ben Shapiro on the right, you've got Sam Harris on the left. You've got Eric Weinstein on the left and you've got Douglas Murray on the right. And they'll have these conversations. They won't agree, but they will have, they'll, yeah, they'll, they'll be able to come to, uh, you know, to, 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 an, to either an agreement or they'll strengthen their own beliefs. And they're not afraid of talking to each other. It's all about free speech, and their popularity has never been greater, um, and continues to and rise. Continues, and continues to be to, 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 to rise. So I think that's a good thing. I think there's, you know, there might be these falsified preferences of people saying, "Oh yeah, we don't like free speech, and I believe in free speech, but or however, yeah. you know, it, hate speech must be banned, etc., etc., etc." But I think a lot of people certainly do, you know, and their popularity is is uh, probably evidence of this. Yeah. Your silent YouTube viewers that you mentioned earlier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the people and their, their actual preferences are, you know what, I like these conversations, I, like, I want to make my own mind up, I do believe in free speech, um, and you know, and, and, and it's, a, it's a good thing. So, it, I think free speech is, or the desire for free speech, is actually on the rise. I think if you go by the polls and by people's falsified stated preferences, <laughs> then you'd be forgiven for believing that's not the case. But I, I think, I think we're, we're on the, I think the pendulum is swinging the right way. I think that's a great way to end. Thanks very much for listening to Sound of Gold. We'll talk to you again next time.